0: Welcome to the History of the World podcast, my name is Chris Hasler And you're listening to Volume 2, The Ancient World This is Episode 13, Ancient Egypt, The Middle Kingdom on the History of the World podcast we outlined what we know about Egypt throughout the first part of the 3rd millennium BCE we discovered how Egypt went through a time of prosperity where we saw great advances in tomb building resulting in the most astonishing achievement which we recognise today as the pyramids we also determined that Egypt was a successful and expanding unified kingdom But we also found out that the Egyptian model began to fail and as such the local governors began to defy the pharaohs and that the kingdom fragmented effectively ending what we now look back on as the old kingdom of Egypt. So what happened next? So Egypt was separated into administrative divisions called gnomes. are very similar to the departments, states or counties that modern countries have, and the purpose of this is to install local governance. And the powers of that local governance are determined by the kingdom or sovereign state itself. In the case of ancient Egypt there were over 40 gnomes in both upper and lower Egypt combined. Each of these gnomes was governed by a nomarch. Traditionally, the Egyptian kingdom was accountable to the pharaoh, who was the nearest thing to a living deity, and as such, the biggest national projects were the tombs in which these pharaohs would ultimately be laid to rest. Namely, these were the mastabas and pyramids. However, it seems as though this period of Egyptian history, where the old kingdom is thought to have ended, is a time when the pharaoh appears to have lost the obedience of his nomarchs. We originally stated that ancient Egypt has been split into 31 dynasties by modern scholars and that the first two dynasties referred to a time period earlier than the Old Kingdom. The first dynasty to follow the demise of the Old Kingdom would have numerically been called the 7th dynasty. but. Really the existence of this dynasty is very much disputed as the kingdom was in a state of civil unrest. Now far be it from me to ram my theories down anybody's throat again and again but honestly many roads point back towards a similar theme to me and theories that carry many weights tend to capture my attention such as this climate change effect on societies. I don't want to be seen as someone who conveniently points towards climate change as the cause of everything that goes wrong, but there is a scientific theory called the 4.2 kilo-year event which could bear some significance to this period. The 4.2 kilo-year event is not to be confused with the 5.9 kilo-year event which probably caused cultures to collate near the rivers of the Fertile Crescent and form larger urban societies in both Egypt and Mesopotamia. The 5.9 kilo year event is something which we described back in episode 23 of volume 1, the episode about pre-dynastic Egypt. Instead, the 4.2 kilo year event is mentioned during episode 2 on the Akkadian Empire as a possible cause of the decline of Akkad during the reign of its king, Shah Kali Shari and the reason why Tel Leilan was abandoned before the Assyrian ruler Shamshi Adad would build a great city called Shubat Enlil a few hundred years later. It could be that the 4.2 kilo year event which saw a prolonged unusually dry period in the northern hemisphere could have genuinely caused a period of low Niles which had a direct effect on agricultural yields and the perception of the pharaoh's ability to bring good fortune to the populace and therefore something that instigated a rise in the rebelliousness of the gnomes, each individually fronted by their challenging nomarch who would do more for their own population than any pharaoh could. This wouldn't have been possible had the pharaohs of the old kingdom of Egypt had not gradually devolved their centralised powers while things were going well. Of course, everyone was growing more prosperous in a booming society, so there was no need to rock the boat. If everyone was getting more of a slice of the pie when the wealth was available, then it would only serve to enhance the strength and bond of the kingdom. During the 6th dynasty, when times were hard and famine was a real event, the Nomarch would use these devolved powers to try to rescue their own gnome regardless of the instruction of the centralised government. Effectively, Egypt had crumbled, and in the same way as it had done in Mesopotamia after the fall of the Akkadian Empire, city-states, otherwise known as nomes, would govern themselves. Historians refer to this period as the First Intermediate Period of Ancient Egypt. First Intermediate Period The first intermediate period is often referred to as a dark age. And in some cases, it is suggested that the country was in civil war, but really it had just broken apart into independent gnomes whose fundamental priority was looking after itself and its people. So there was really no centralized power trying to reunify the country. Memphis had lost all of its influence. One of the first cities that appeared to prosper from the ashes of the Old Kingdom was Heracleopolis. We have not discussed Heracleopolis yet, and it is not to be confused with the Upper Egyptian city of Hieracompolis, which is also known as Nekan, which was a prominent city of pre dynastic times. As with many aspects of ancient Egypt, We learned of them from Greek scholars of a later age, which is why we have so many Greek names for these cities. We can be very sure that the Egyptians did not use these names themselves. Heracleopolis was a given name to this city in later times due to their discovery of a temple built there during the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, which was dedicated to the Egyptian deity called Hereshaf, who was depicted as a man with the head of a ram. The Greeks would associate Heresaph with their own divine being called Heracles, hence the name Heracleopolis, which the Greeks would call Heracleopolis Magna to distinguish it from other cities devoted to Heracles. We mentioned Heracles in the story of the Phoenicians in episode 9 due to the fact that they had also associated Heracles with the Phoenician god called Melkart. So it does appear that when the Greeks rose to power during their own golden age, during the classical age, that they would try to associate aspects of foreign cultures as equivalents to their aspects of Greek cultures, maybe as a means to justify Greek ideas as being supreme. Heracleopolis is considered to be an important centre of emerging power during the first intermediate period and it is considered to be the home of the 9th and 10th dynasties of Egypt. However, there does appear to be another power developing elsewhere in the remnants of the Old Kingdom at a city which has come to be known as Thebes which once again is another retrospective Greek name and one that we have to be careful to distinguish from the ancient city which actually is in Greece that has the same name. Thebes was the home of an 11th dynasty of rulers. The city itself was based in upper Egypt so it was in the same area of the Nile as other powerful cities such as Hierakompolis and Abydos, Herakliopolis was based in Lower Egypt, much nearer to Memphis and Saqqara. It would be the Thebans that appeared to try to expand their influence to the areas further north by moving downwards along the river towards the delta. And the crucial meeting between the Heracleopolitans and the Thebans would come during the 21st century BCE. Mentuhotep II It was during the reign of the Theban king, Mentuhotep II, that things came to a head between Thebes and Heracliopolis. One of the southernmost cities under the influence of Heracliopolis was Asyut, a city which exists to this day. It was the nomarch of Asyut, Keti II, who decided to take a military force up the Nile river to take a stand against the outwardly aggressive Thebans under the leadership of Mentuhotep II. It was a mistake as Mentuhotep II quickly crushed Keti II and advanced northwards. The people of Asiut had already been weighing up the option of defecting to the Theban side of Egyptian politics. Now Thebes had control of Upper Egypt and had a gateway to the Heracleopolitan heartlands. It does appear that Mentuhotep's strength was the fact that he was decisive in his actions and the execution of them. The Thebans travelled northwards to Heracleopolis and desecrated its royal tombs before running the elite out of the city. Once Mentuhotep's troops occupied Heracleopolis, the elite were chased out of the city and hunted down in the desert lands. Any rebels were immediately imprisoned. With Heracleopolis now firmly under Theban control, Mentahotep II quickly worked to establish the limits of a new Egyptian kingdom by securing his southern borders against the troublesome Nubian tribes. This would be the birth of a new unified Egyptian kingdom, one that we today call the Middle Kingdom. Despite the II's efforts to become a decisive pharaoh of a united Egypt, things would not quite be the same as in the golden age of the Old Kingdom. Where the pharaohs of the Old Kingdom were held in such high regard that their rule was considered to be absolute, the Nomarchs of the middle kingdom still enjoyed their local powers regardless of the reunification of Egypt. This time things were different and we can describe this as a kind of feudal system. The nomarchs who were the leaders of the administrative gnomes consolidated their positions by intermarrying members of their families. So the gnomes would remain and they would maintain an amount of power in this new kingdom. Evidence exists of a ceremonial war cemetery at a Theban necropolis at Deir el-Bahari which is very near to the modern city of Luxor which has been built on the ruins of the ancient city of Thebes. The necropolis is more well known for being the location of funerary monuments for many pharaohs of the Middle and New Kingdoms but there are also a number of bodies buried with some degree of ceremony and with evidence of injuries typical of battle such as arrow wounds. The mass tomb has been called MMA507 and is one of a number of tombs named after the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City who helped to commission the excavations. Some have suggested that these are the brave and honoured soldiers of battle who gave their lives in the Theban push to conquer Heracleopolis Amanemhat I. It is quite likely that the actions of Mentahotep II did not lead to a happily ever after outcome for the Egyptian kingdom, as with the sheer amount of gnomes and power-hungry nomarchs that existed in the kingdom, there were bound to be some contention to this new political direction. The 11th dynasty, of which Mentahotep II was a part of and which found its capital at Thebes, was brought to an end by the reign of a new pharaoh called Amenemhat I. It is not completely clear as to whether Amenemhat I took the throne of Egypt by fair or foul means, but it is believed that he was not of royal lineage and as such is considered to be the first pharaoh of the 12th dynasty. One of the first things that Amenemhat would do is to re-establish the capital city of the kingdom in Lower Egypt near to the old capital of Memphis at a place called Ichtawi which is named in honour of Amenemhat's successful subjugation of both Upper and Lower Egypt. One of the reasons put forward to explain the relocation of the capital city from Thebes is that it provided a closer link to the Asiatic lands which represented the more valuable trade links but also the most viable foreign threats to the kingdom. Amenemhat was very proactive in his firm establishment of his Egyptian kingdom and he set about making border fortifications to protect against those foreign threats. He is also considered responsible for extending the kingdom as far south as the second cataract of the Nile, which is something that had not been seen since the days of the Old Kingdom. Amenemhat took great pride in the slaughter of Nubians in their own lands to achieve this goal. Despite the relocation of the Egyptian capital, Amenemhat would not neglect Thebes in Upper Egypt and would commission the construction of a temple to the Theban deity called Ammon whose stature as a deity to Thebes was cemented by the 11th dynasty pharaohs who favoured him over Montu who was worshipped predominantly by Thebans of the Old Kingdom So we can see that Amenemhat was a very proactive pharaoh and the Middle Kingdom needed this in order to prosper in its comparatively devolved condition. Amenemhat would also try to emphasise his imperial level in importance as an Egyptian pharaoh by trying to emulate the Old Kingdom pharaohs by the construction of a huge pyramid the likes of which had not been seen since the days of the Old Kingdom. Originally it seems that it was to be constructed in Thebes but then for whatever reason the plan changed and its location to Lisht in Lower Egypt. It is very unclear what caused the Menemhat to move his capital city and his tomb from Thebes to Lower Egypt. The pyramid itself looks like a poor man's version of the Old Kingdom's greatest pyramids. The magnificence of the Old Kingdom pyramids would never be matched, but there was still a renewed period of pyramid building. Senesret I Amenemhat I had a number of children. His son would become Senazret I, but Amenemhat I made him the Pharaoh during his own lifetime, beginning a tradition of father's son co-rule, which can be seen a few times during the 12th dynasty. It was actually during this period of co-rule that Egypt reached and fortified the second cataract of the Nile. But it was in 1962 BCE that Amenemhet I died and left the kingdom entirely to Senusret. Amenemhet's death is mysterious. Written artefacts have been recovered which refer to the aftermath of Amenemhet's death. The instructions of Amenemhet refer to the story of Senusret discovering the truth behind his father's death after being visited by his father's spirit. The spirit of Amenemhet warned Senesret that he was killed by peoples who had been conspiring against him and that Senesret himself would be well served to keep even his closest advisors at arm's length. The story of Sinuhe tells how Senesret learns of his father's death while on campaign in Libya. And follows the story of Sinuhe, an Egyptian official, as he flees to the Canaan in the aftermath. Regardless of how Amenemhat died, Senusret continued to rule with the same determination and conviction as his father before him, consolidating the southern border, building significant temples, and rewarding those nomarchs who stayed loyal to him. We know that he built temple obelisks like the one still standing in the Heliopolis district of the modern city of Cairo ultimately there would be very many of these iconic ancient Egyptian monolithic obelisks created as temples and they would also end up all over the world due to their fascinating appeal one very astonishing fact about Senesret was his choice of wife his wife was called Neferu, and was the daughter of Amenemhet I, which makes her Senusret I's sister. So she is referred to as the sister-wife of Senusret I. Incestuous marriages seem to have been quite normalised in Egyptian societies, as this isn't an isolated incident. We only have to look at the DNA studies of the famous New Kingdom pharaoh Tutankhamun to see that indeed his parents were very closely related to each other, maybe even brother and sister. Possibly Senesret I's successor, Amenemhat II, was the son of this brother-sister marriage. We say possibly because there is a definite reference to Nefru as Amenemhat II's mother, but no direct mention of Senesret I as his father. Senesret was a very strong and effective leader of the Egyptian kingdom and his reign is considered to be symbolic of the middle kingdom at its height. The new golden age of Egypt during what we call its middle kingdom lasted throughout the 12th dynasty which included the 20th and 19th centuries BCE. Art and literature. The golden age of the Middle Kingdom can be experienced through the artwork of the period which was heavily influenced by the royal house where the best artisans were gifted the highest quality of materials to work with. And why not? The kingdom was doing very well for itself again. Sculptures of the pharaohs themselves were often being created using quartzite stones like the face of Senesret III created from red quartzite and dating to the 19th century BCE the elaborate jewellery excavated from royal tombs dating to the same century tell a story of their own gold carnelian lapis lazuli and turquoise used in these items demonstrate far reaching trade movements of which we are already aware of from ancient times. So this should come as no surprise and although we highlight very clearly that we should not be surprised by how advanced the quality of artwork was from such periods in our history, the sight of it is still breathtaking. The ornate detail and the attractiveness to the eye would be highly admired even if it were created today. From those MMA tombs that exist near Thebes we have discovered some amazing creations including wooden models of an ancient Egypt granary and a brewery and bakery. This snapshot of an everyday life scene from ancient Egypt is a story in itself. We can even describe ourselves as very lucky to have uncovered this piece of work due to the fact that these tombs have been raided and plundered time and time again. The bakery and brewery are one model which contains wooden depictions of workers who are processing the crops throughout the whole process to the creation of the breads and beers. A guard sits to supervise the behaviour of the workers armed with a trusty baton. In the granary we see a different scene altogether. Workers move sacks of grain but they are outnumbered by administrators who are recording information, some on wooden writing boards and others on papyrus scrolls. These models are carefully painted and their discovery is thanks to the work of the American Egyptologist Herbert Eustace Winlock, who was invited by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York to work at Lischt in the year 1906 Winlock devoted his life to taking part in excavation and restoration projects in Egypt until the 1930s when it became financially difficult to continue the work and Winlock had to come back to the United States Winlock's work has proved invaluable to our understanding of the Egyptian Middle Kingdom Papyrus Papyrus was not a new thing to Egyptians during the time of the Middle Kingdom, so it should come as no surprise to see the men and women of the model granary using it. Papyrus manufacture in Egypt can be dated way back to the 4th millennium BCE. Papyrus is made from the cypress papyrus plant which is abundant in Egypt's marshlands and when cultivated can have a number of uses. The roots of the plant were used for food, medicines and perfumes. The stems were particularly buoyant and fibrous meaning that they were very versatile being used for weaving, clothing and more practical items such as baskets and rope right through to the construction of boats. Our modern English word paper is etymologically linked to the word papyrus and that is because the most famous use of the papyrus plant is to create something to write on. The Egyptians did not leave us much in the way of written instructions for the manufacture of their papyrus. However, we would imagine that they would take the moist stems of the plants and pack them tightly side by side before putting another layer of stems perpendicularly on top in the same manner. This whole construction would be squashed into a flat sheet and then allowed to dry. It appears that papyrus sheets varied in quality according to the expertise of the manufacturer and the quality of the plant. So you could expect to find some very coarse examples of papyrus used for more practical purposes like wrapping something, as opposed to being used as a piece of writing paper. However, it is its use as a piece of writing paper that has given us one of the more interesting alternative insights into the Egyptian culture when a particular papyrus was acquired by a Scottish archaeologist called Alexander Henry Rhind, The papyrus is thought to date back to around 1650 BCE which is much nearer to the final stages of the Middle Kingdom than we have already spoken about. The papyrus would come to be known as the Rhind mathematical papyrus and after interpretation it appears to have tackled some very advanced mathematical problems and solutions relating to egyptian fractions which was a method of fraction construction not favoured in the modern day however This kind of theoretical study of abstract ideas relating to mathematics is comparable to those studies made by the Babylonians in the first half of the second millennium BCE too. So this demonstrates an advanced knowledge of the relationship between mathematics and physics throughout the Fertile Crescent or the Nile Valley in Mesopotamia. Which shouldn't be surprising when we consider the expert architectural advances and successes of these cultures throughout the 3rd millennium BCE and the acceptable administrative arrangements demonstrated by contemporary law codes such as those of Hammurabi of Babylon. It could be the case that the Egyptians may have had a similar foundation for administering their own laws. The beginning of the end If we pick up our chronological story we could continue boasting of the feats of the 12th dynasty pharaohs, listing them individually and applauding their achievements. We're not going to do that as we don't really have time, but we can indeed say that Senesret III is viewed upon as the most aggressive of the kings of the 12th dynasty. And that's saying something because certainly Amenemhat I and Senesret I were no shrinking violets. It appears that Senesret III had a long co-regency with his son Amenemhat III, who is famed for his building projects including the Black Pyramid which was built at the Darshur Necropolis, which includes other pyramids built seven or eight hundred years previous, during the age of the Old Kingdom. The 12th dynasty ended with a female pharaoh called Sobekneferu. Is she the first female pharaoh? Well, We can't be completely sure, but we do know that she certainly was the pharaoh, and we can't say that for sure about any other female previously. Sobek Neferu didn't rule for long, and her passing coincided with the passing of the 12th dynasty, and things would never quite be the same again. The 13th dynasty pharaohs do appear to have a direct descendancy from the 12th dynasty pharaoh, Amenemhat IV so it is quite mysterious why scholars have chosen not to consider this to be a part of the 12th dynasty. However, it does appear that this was a fundamental turning point in Egyptian history. The 12th dynasty represented the golden age of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. Even though the pharaohs didn't necessarily have the absolute rule that the pharaohs of the Old and indeed the New Kingdoms had, it does appear that there was order order and prosperity. The dawn of the 13th dynasty may have also been the dawn of the 14th dynasty as it appears that the kingdom was fragmenting again. The exact sequence of events is unsurprisingly unclear but we do believe that the drama that led to the downfall of the middle kingdom emanated from lower Egypt. It was a time where it is believed that Asiatic migrants moved into the Delta, although there doesn't appear to be any evidence of warfare or that a mighty invasion took place. There is no record of a mighty kingdom in the Sinai or Canaan from this period and it was in the aftermath of the fall of the Neo-Sumerians some 200 years previous, so that was the last major power to have any influence over Canaan lands. Whoever these migrants were, it does appear that they established a rebel capital city at Averis during the 18th century BCE and established what we call a 14th dynasty in defiance of the 13th dynasty still based at Ichtawi. The 13th dynasty was a shadow of its former self and both Averis and Ichtawi seemed content to continue local rule and it worked probably because the Middle Kingdom was quite feudal when it came down to it anyway. So the Egyptians really didn't need a pharaoh to govern itself, because the infrastructure was in place with the viziers and the nomarchs doing all the work on the ground anyway. The fact that the pharaohs were no longer taken that seriously can be seen with the fast turnaround of pharaohs suggesting that pharaohs were taking it in turns to be the pharaoh, and as such... The task of pyramid building somewhat finished with the people of the land having better things to do with their time than prepare a pharaoh that they were not particularly interested in for the afterlife. The far-reaching outposts of the glorious 12th dynasty were abandoned and despite the fact that the 14th dynasty at Avaris prepared for military conflict to protect its newfound power, the 13th dynasty at Ichtawi seemed More interested in looking after itself than reclaiming lost territory. Even the 14th dynasty itself faced famine and death, so the fact that Ichtawi was unable to take advantage of this says it's all about the lack of strength of both entities. The Hyksos. Studying the Hyksos has been an absolute nightmare with sources contradicting each other over many different aspects, so I will offer my humble opinion based on what I have studied to try to give you the bare facts of what I know. So I have encountered a traditional view that the Hyksos were an Asiatic people with advanced weaponry and warfare tactics, who invaded and conquered Egypt in around 1782 BCE. Now, It would be great if this was this straightforward. So let's dissect the claims above. The Hyksos were Asiatic and they invaded Egypt. Well, if you recall, the first lands of Egypt that the Hyksos would have encountered upon first crossing the Sinai Peninsula would have been the lands controlled by the city of Avaris, the home of the 14th dynasty which was founded by Asiatic immigrants. So should we overlook the fact that the Asiatic peoples have already been in Egyptian lands for a number of generations and that the Hyksos were an extension of these peoples invited into Egypt by their Asiatic or Semitic cousins? So this may suggest that the term invasion may be a little harsh. When we study history, we do enjoy talking of a dramatic invasion. So the temptation is to glorify things. So I'm going to be the boring one to suggest that this sense of a military flattening of Egypt might not be accurate. I've read that the Egyptians armed only with spears were no match for the Hyksos with their chariots and bronze weapons. Well I'll agree that there doesn't appear to be much evidence of chariotry in Egypt prior to the Hyksos but certainly bronze weaponry including spears and axe heads have been discovered dating back to the Middle Kingdom and with the successful trade links established that gave as much diversity of materials to the grave goods of the Old and Middle Kingdoms than to think that the Egyptians were in any way backwards from other fertile crescent societies seems hard to believe I will accept that the Egyptians seem to be in a vulnerable condition at this point but this would have definitely been for political and circumstantial reasons rather than the fact that they were underdeveloped as a people from what knowledge we have gathered in the past diplomacy would have been a much more sensible way for the Hyksos to have gained a foothold in Egypt with the Hyksos being Semitic speakers they would have been able to negotiate with the people of Avaris, also of Asiatic origin, as they would have been in control of the land trade route through Sinai. So with the indigenous Egyptians of Ichtawi struggling to make ends meet, these wealthy foreigners may have proved to be irresistible should they want to survive, thus making warfare obsolete. The truth is that we don't really have a lot of evidence but we just don't want to jump to conclusions based on ancient romantic sources even if it's somebody as reputable as Manetho who at best was a scribe with no access to modern scientific principles. I've read and listened to texts and experts claim that the Hyksos were of Hurrian origin or that they had an empire stretching around the lands of the eastern Mediterranean shores, I just don't know what to believe. I have seen them described as Palestinians, even though the term Palestinian seems to have no place this far back in history. The fact that they ride chariots shouldn't be that surprising as chariots had existed in Near East lands for many, many centuries before this. We do believe them to be Semitic and they would have been exposed to the advanced science of the Near East. They did come to the fertile lands of Lower Egypt and they did take over. And that is all that I am prepared to say about them at this point. What we can say is that at this point, the Middle Kingdom of Egypt was now a memory. Next time on the History of the World podcast, we're going to take a step back from the chronology and explore something which, at the very least, requires a podcast all of its own. It's the pyramids. Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast. did go on a little bit longer than usual, but there was such a lot of information to cram in and it's always uh, difficult to know what to keep and what to remove in order to make it a... A good, efficient podcast. So, thank you very much, and I hope we covered the story of Middle Kingdom as well as we possibly could. We've deliberately avoided subjects such as the pyramids and religion because we're going to cover those in their own dedicated podcast episode. So, don't worry if you wanted to find more about uh, the sun god Ra and uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza. We will be getting around to those subjects, even though. The chronology has skipped past them. We will be venturing back over them in podcasts devoted to those very topics. So we'll look forward to those. Now, don't forget that there are many ways that you can support this podcast. One way that you can do it, which doesn't cost you a penny, is to review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, I noticed that mainly the USA uh, website for Apple Podcasts there's quite a number of reviews on there. You can never have too many. The more you review, the more apparent that the product is on Apple Podcasts, so you can really sort of boost their awareness by keep rating and reviewing us. But I've noticed that a uh, number of countries there are no reviews for the History of the World podcast. And I know that there's listeners listening in those countries. So if you do choose to use Apple Podcasts and you click on History of the World podcast and you notice that there's no ratings or reviews or not enough to give us a a general rating, then don't muck about, put a rating on there, give the podcast the boost that it needs to make uh, more awareness and then it makes it more available to people who may in turn donate to the podcast so we have a patreon page and we invite you to make contributions in order to keep the running of the podcast going so uh, at the moment um, we do have some kind patrons who donate to the podcast it's not enough money to cover the running costs but um, i'm hopeful that we will soon get there you know so um as we get more listeners, the uh, the platform that we use audio boom, in turn, they like to charge me more, so obviously, the more people that listen, uh, the more people that we look to donate to the podcast and help to keep the running costs. so even if it's just a dollar or two dollars a month, that's something, and it all adds up, and it all helps us to keep this podcast going and at no expense to my good self, um, that we're all paying for it together. Now, as ever, the links are on the uh, Facebook page, on the Twitter page. The web blog is historyoftheworldpodcast.com. There's loads and loads of links on there now. I keep adding to it all the time, so it should be somewhere where you can visit and spend a bit of time exploring the various links and uh, web pages that we've got attached there, other podcasts that um, we're associated with and uh, there's plenty to do. So please come to the thehistoryoftheworldpodcast.com. Have a little click around and see what we've got available there for you. Now, I did promise last week that we would do the uh, Apple Podcast reviews. This is one of my favourite times. We get some real cracking reviews on here, some real nutcases on here. So I'm going to try and um, read them out very quickly now. Um, we have got um, from the USA, Mike P. Mack um, has said, great podcast, well-researched and creator, has plenty of energy putting out some great podcasts, keep up the good work. Thank you very much. Um, Nilok Kalin from Canada, um, history, human history from the very start. I've been listening... Two other historical podcasts, finding myself wondering what happens before a particular event each time. I decided to search for something that can take me right back to the very beginning. Chris delivers with this podcast. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, Archie Freddy XX from the UK. I've got a feeling I know this guy. Anyone interested on the history of mankind need to listen. There are great podcasts relaxed while still informing. I have really enjoyed listening to Chris while training for the London Marathon. Any questions are answered on following podcasts showing great interaction and making the whole experience really interactive. I highly recommend this site if anyone has an interest in the evolution of man and how mankind has developed across the world. Great social media presence and good informative maps accompany the podcast. Well done, Chris. Keep it up. At the food soldier a.k.a. Brendan Wood. Now, the food soldier, Brendan Wood, um, I know, is running the London Marathon next week. We've been mentioning it a few times on previous podcasts. He's running the London Marathon uh, for the Princess Royal Trust for Carers in Hampshire, which is a, a county in the UK. And um, I'd really like it if you would consider a donation. I know I keep begging for money this week, but actually this one's a very good cause if you do have some spare cash that you can donate to the food soldier who's running the London Marathon, and it really does go to a good cause, the Princess Royal Trust for carers carers really do need support there's no real you don't it's not a paid job really if you If you have to care for a family member, you know you have to devote your whole life to that and there really needs to be a good support system in place for these people and We'd really like you to support Brendan in his work in running the London Marathon and trying to raise some well-needed funds for this great cause. So um, I'll post a link on the Facebook and Twitter pages and please do consider a nice little donation. Anyway, back to the reviews. Uh, Planet and Sky. From USA. I've got a feeling I know this guy as well. Great research and delivery. Few podcasts have engaged my imagination like this one has in such a short time. I binge listened to the full podcast in a couple of weeks and couldn't stop thinking about the content. Chris introduces complex topics with ease and a humble understanding of the differing interpretations of the evidence. He urges the listener to think and draw their own conclusions. Well, uh, that's what I believe. I, I do listen to so many podcasts and historical documentaries that really it's just someone there just telling you what you should think and and I just don't believe in history being presented that way I think we should be encouraged to think for ourselves because it is the collation of our thoughts that give us these wonderful sort of directions in and and, and historically it's been the same you know it really is just what most people believe in that becomes the mainstream theory so we should be encouraged to think for ourselves. Riley Venable from the USA um, all the detail of a postgraduate history course delivered by your mate at the local perfect for listening to on your ride home I give My highest recommendation, Riley Venable, PhD, Texas Southern University, Houston, Texas, USA, retired. Um, Yes, uh, Riley Venable, I think you actually gave me a good uh, Facebook review as well. Um, I'm really grateful, and coming from uh, someone with a PhD and uh, a university lecturer, that's really uh, fantastic and, and wonderful for you to take the time to let me know that you approve of my work. Such 49 from the USA. On a lonely highway, your car breaks down, a stranger drives by, pulls over, backs up, turns off his engine, gets out of his car, walks up and asks, what's the trouble? While he's checking under the hood, you tell him the story of your life. He gets your motor running, he is happy to help. Before you can thank him properly, he has driven off. I love this podcast. I've got nothing to add to that. Bad Be- uh, Ad from the USA says, uh, well-researched, easy to follow and great to binge, which is good because it's hard to stop. Also, his accent is re- reminiscent of Holly from Red Dwarf, so it makes it quite fun to listen to. Yeah, Holly from Red Dwarf. I don't know if anyone, like, I don't know how widely known Red Dwarf is, actually. Um, Red Dwarf was a sitcom from the 80s and the 90s. It's a British sitcom. Um, well, that was its heyday in the eighties and the nineties, and and Holly was like the onboard computer, and it was played by a gentleman called Norman Lovett, who comes from he, he actually was born near to London, so quite like, he's like me, he's not in London but just outside of London, hence the similarity of accent. Holly's uh, Norman Lovett very very dry sort of um, accent, very dry and not very. Um exciting, but that was part of the charm of Holly, really, so it was much more like that, but yes, very much the same part of the world, so good well spotted um and then k m hammy um from u s a quite enjoyable, both relaxing and informative. I'm still fascinated when we speak about evolution. We seem to talk in terms of the organisms developing in order to. In other words, the brain needed to grow in order to... dot dot, dot They de- developed these complex social skills in order to raise their children... Dot, dot, dot. I wonder if it would be more accurate to speak in terms of at some point this happened and so this followed. Example, at some point this species managed to develop a tool that improved their hunting skills and subsequently increased protein intake which increased socialisation etc. So rather than assuming that there is a purpose, the first assumption really is that this is just happening by circumstance. But that's everywhere. Still love listening. Well, it's interesting actually that subject and um, just trying to sort of um, pinpoint the point that you're making. Um, yeah, a lot of the things, especially if we go back to the way that Homo sapiens evolved, and this sort of mentality that Homo sapiens is the finished article of human evolution, and we're really not. It's a reaction to circumstances, so we haven't necessarily evolved in order to, um, in order to achieve an ultimate goal we've evolved in order to survive in the circumstances that surround us at that moment in time. And this is why we are the strange animal that we find that we are today. So perhaps we're very, very, very brainy because otherwise we should have died out because we're quite gangly, ape-like things that don't really have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, we don't have big teeth like lions or anything like that. We don't have like sort of, we're not sort of, powerful like uh, bears you know so we don't really have a lot going for us really so maybe we had to become super intelligent just to survive. Anyway wonderful as ever to read those uh, reviews out I love them all thank you so much for taking the time to write them out they're very entertaining to read and um, and it really is kind of you to take the time to write them I know not a lot of us have um, two minutes to spare in our days so the fact that people are taking the time to write a review really does mean a lot to me so thank you sincerely um, just before I send this to publish actually um, I have noticed that a very kind donation has been made by Kevin Cock to the podcast so thank you very much Kevin and uh, I'll be in touch with you shortly to give you a personal thank you and um, if anyone else wants to help to contribute towards the upkeep of the podcast in by all means visit the Patreon page so, last week's episode, Ancient Egypt, the Old Kingdom, was the first podcast episode that had a thousand listens in its first week. So, thank you so much. And I'm hoping that's, you know, the ancient Egypt subject is much more of a mainstream subject that is interesting to people studying history. So, maybe the fact that we're venturing into that subject might be able to attract more listeners to the podcast. Well, there you go. Thank you very much for bearing with me this week. It's a very long episode. Next week is a very important episode. We're going to be exploring the ancient Egyptian pyramids. So one of the most fundamental and important podcast episodes, probably, of this history of the human being. Um, But be sure to join us next week. Until that time, have a fantastic week and we'll join up again this time in seven days. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at podcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the support the podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.